Welcome to Movie Maniacs, discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Good evening, everybody. My name is Chuck Curry, alongside my co-host, Kenny B. This is uh, Movie Maniacs, a weekly podcast radio show heard every Saturday night at midnight on WoWo out of Fort Wayne, Indiana. An absolute pleasure to be heard on that great Station. This is a show where we talk about uh, the world of movies, film, uh, pop culture, television, so on and so forth. We got a writer strike and an actor strike going that continues to be a dominant uh, theme in the industry. Uh, on this week's program, as we always do, we do a top 10 list around the program. This week, we figured there's been so much talk, and I mean so much talk, of artificial intelligence and robotics and robots uh affecting the film industry we figured hey let's maybe discuss our top 10 favorite movies or 10 movies you think you should watch that deal with the concept or the uh, the the category of artificial intelligence or robots machinery actually machinery machines rule the day in our top 10 list we'll do that in the latter half of the program we're going to discuss what we have seen this week also i got some movie news this day in movie history and without further ado uh, how are you, Kenny B? I am doing fine. I was doing some cutting down some trees and bushes today out there with the chainsaw. You know, it's a funny thing when us little boys grow up, we still like digging in the dirt and cutting things down. And uh, they they actually allow me to use a chainsaw again. Uh, figure at my age, if I lose a few fingers, it's not a problem. So, uh, <laughs> and looking forward, we're supposed to be getting some more uh, moderate weather, cooler weather next week. Looking forward okay. to that. But uh, I've been hot here, so uh, melting just a little bit, but looking forward to talking about these movies. Now, before I get on to uh, our initial topic, which will be what's doing well at the movies and what's not, uh, did you get a chance to see anything of interest that you want to talk about to the audience? I, I did. Go ahead, you tell me. It it's funny because I have my grandchildren visiting since uh, Saturday, so I turned the television on last night for the first time in a week and watched an episode of um yeah of suits i also started watching that new gail godot movie on uh, netflix, netflix. I want to talk, the, that's what i want to talk okay, about and I, i've only got through a few minutes of it but uh uh yeah well i was i wasn't impressed come come yet so i'll be interested in what you have to talk about uh, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, uh, it's called Heart of Stone, it's one of the new Netflix action movies with a big uh, star who's taken another big paycheck, that being Gal Gadot, who is Wonder Woman. Listen, I find her very appealing, uh, I think she's a very interesting person, uh, and I'd love to see her do do, uh, do another Wonder Woman movie, will it happen? Uh, I say, eh, probably not, but... Uh, simply because of the direction James Gunn's going to go with the DC. Even though she said, you know, I'm working on another Wonder Woman movie, uh, Variety sort of refuted that report. But I am a fan. I definitely am a fan. So I watched this movie, and I got to tell you, I was un underwhelmed. First of all, the effects look cheap. It does not feel theatrical. There was a scene in the movie, it's sort of like a Mission Impossible wannabe. Uh, and it's her and... Uh, uh, um, um, the, the James Dornan from uh, the Fifty Shades movie, who I like. I think he's good. He did a movie uh, on, I think it was on one of the basic cable channels, FX. It was about Hervé Villachay uh, with, with um, 
a few years ago, and I thought his, he did really good work in that movie, so I like him. And their chemistry's fine, but she does a skydive scene in the movie in the first act of the film, and it looks fake. I mean, just does not look good. Uh, a, lot, a lot of stuff is, is pedestrian, it's ho-hum. It was barely watchable, in my opinion. And I, I say to myself, like, why is Netflix spending all this money on these projects that, one, don't seem to really have much of an interest in producing a good product? The star gets a good paycheck. It'll draw eyeballs, and this movie has eyeballs drawn to it simply because uh, she is a name, and, and I guess people sitting on the couch have nothing better to do than tune into a Netflix movie of the week, even though you know uh, it's a very expensive one, probably a budget well over $100 million. I wouldn't be surprised if it's $150 million plus. Why they're spending all this money on movies that look like a B-movie uh, with a, with a half ass script dare I say, uh, in, in a, in a non-imaginative directorial effort, uh, one after the other, for the most part, I don't get, so, uh, I was not impressed. Now, I also got a chance to see more, been watching, as I said, last week's program, I don't know, I have sort of a fascination with reflection, watching some older YouTube stuff, and I continue to watch older episodes of, uh, Siskel and Ebert when they did at the movies and sneak previews, and I, it so happens, it was one I was watching from 1976, Ken, it was sneak previews, and on the same program, now think about this, they reviewed King Kong with Jessica Lange, which is a first feature film, Rocky and Network, all on the same show. And I was like, holy smoke, like think about that, 1976, you had Rocky Network, King Kong. Uh, it, uh, what I found interesting is Ebert really liked King Kong, and I was like, oh, because I do too. I, I always liked that movie, though, even though uh, you know, it got knocked by some critics and Jessica Lange's performance got knocked. Ebert really liked it, and he liked her performance. Uh, for Rocky, what was interesting, Ebert loved it, but Siskel sort of was mixed. He gave it a he gave it a yes recommendation, but didn't like the performance of Talia Shire. Boy, was he wrong! Or uh, Bert Young as Paulie. He thought that was a cartoon character. Uh, again, he was wrong. But uh, they both like Network uh, Ebert more than Siskel. But very interesting to watch that, and you know, for people who want to reflect on Siskel and Ebert and their history and pop culture have never seen him. All this stuff is on YouTube and I think that's actually uh, really, really cool. I've had a really good time watching that stuff. Um, I, I, I always enjoyed those old shows and I have, have to agree because the part that I watched of uh, the, the Netflix movie went through the end of the uh, parachute scene and uh, yeah. it, I, it was like, is this parachute... Why is it illuminated? You know, it's like yeah. Look, I mean, it, it looked cheap. It looked so cheap. It was. I mean, it was a. It was. They used an overhead shot, almost like. I guess they did it with mostly CGI, or, you know, computer CGI, but not good CGI. And and it it just felt like the, the whole project was going through the motions. And I say, if you're gonna, why not? If you're gonna do it, if you're gonna build a product, your Netflix product, why not? Do it up to par and do it do it right these movies a lot of them especially this one uh is is not not done to a, a high standard but at least that's my my opinion now in theaters uh again you got bobby and oppenheimer still continue to do extremely well bobby's at over 1.1 billion dollars worldwide oppenheimer's done over 600 million worldwide uh, call it what you want a phenomenon but uh what's interesting a couple people said when Bobby has hit now, you know, you're probably going to see more movies based on toys. But a, a, 
person tweeted, I don't, I forget the celebrity's name. He said, no, you're missing the point. We need to make more movies about women and that what women want to see. And I think that really is the heart and soul of the success of Barbie. And I read an article, Ken, that said over 35% of all people who went to the movie theater to pay to see Barbie had not gone to a theatrical uh, film in a movie theater uh, post-COVID. So this movie has got a lot of people back into theaters. And as I've been saying on the last few programs, it is a complete uh, indictment on what studios have been producing, mainly the big superhero and male-driven action movie. People are clamoring to see other type products in the marketplace. Now, what is interesting about the superhero this weekend, you got Blue Beetle, which is getting pretty good reviews. You know, for the, the consensus is that it's fun, it's family-oriented, has some good special effects. Uh, it, 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 it has some good sense of humor. Now, this movie was produced before James Gunn took over DC, uh, and, uh, the Warner Brothers division of superheroes. So I think it has to do well for him to keep his character in that universe. Uh, I'm going to go see it tomorrow. I'll let you people know what I think of it about it on next week's program. But it did 3.3 million in its preview shows on Thursday night, which is a solid number. It's tracking better than it expected of, of last last month's tracking. So it's tracking between 28 and 32 million. If it gets a good resurgence, because it is geared, it is mostly a Latino cast. If it gets the Latino crowd to really support this film, and it appears online is some a good groundswell of support, who knows, this film could do in, into the uh, upper 30s, and if it gets good word of mouth, maybe it'll do $100 million here domestically, which would be a very solid number, I think, for a film with a reported budget of $125 uh, million. On a f- caveat to that, I think the one thing I, I, that popped into my head, Ken, and I, I sort of feel... Uh, sort of feel bad for the actor. The uh, the lead actor, his name is uh, Zoe uh, Marquis, uh, I believe that's his name, uh, who was in the Cobra Kai series. And he's very appealing in that Netflix Cobra Kai Karate Kid spin-off series. This is his first starring role. He's getting really good notices. But here's the thing. Because of the actor's strike and the writer's strike, he's not allowed to go out and promote his first forte into a starring film. So he's never going to have that memory of doing the talk show circuit uh, on an aggressive uh, posture because of the writer's strike. And I, I, you know, so many people are going to be affected by, by that. I, I think that's sort of a bummer. Opinion on that one? Oh, I, I agree. And that's, you know, I think one of the reasons, as you've mentioned a few times, that some of the releases are going to be delayed because it is part of the uh, marketing. It is part, I think, of the the fun and excitement for the actors. I mean, they... Sure. They, no red carpet. No, no red, red carpet. carpet. No talk shows. No local radio. No, mm-hmm. no anything which gets well, them an even bigger fan base. So, so I, I tend to agree. Yeah, what they did with Blue Beetle actually is the director uh, did some free fan screenings to try to create some uh, buzz. But you know, obviously, there's there's no 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 red carpet at this point. Uh, there was some uh, some at the table negotiation between the writers uh, and, and the studios and uh, evidently reports were somewhat mixed. I, I have to believe that better heads will prevail and before the end of the year there's going to be some sort of resolution. I think there has to be. Having said that, I just read that a lot of network shows like Grey's Anatomy, a lot of the ABC shows are going to be the premieres are going to be kicked forward now. So if you if you're if 
you're one of those people who watches a lot of network television, I think you're going to get a lot of game shows uh, and reality stuff this fall. The scripted stuff will be kicked uh, probably into uh, at least early next year, Ken. And yeah, and it's, you know, we'll probably see a few more game shows pop up and a few more reality shows and uh, you know those things where they don't need the writers and they don't necessarily need actors. So be interesting to see how all this goes. And it's got to be really frustrating for the late night talk shows because I mean, this really the hands are tied. I mean, without uh, you really can't do much without the, uh, the the celebrities coming on to promote their product. I mean, that's basically the heart and show of why of of, of heart and soul of why they exist. One other uh, movie bit in terms of box office. The tracking on Equalizer 3, which opens on Labor Day weekend, September 1st, uh, is good. Uh, it's tracking between 30 and $40 million four-day opening weekend. This will most likely be the last forte uh, in the in this franchise with Denzel Washington, who's getting a little bit long in the tooth. I love Denzel Washington. I love him in this franchise. For the first two did over $100 million domestically. I thought the, the, the grounded, poignant scenes in the Equalizer movies are fantastic. As I said... A few times in this program, I never thought they needed to have big villains and have big scale action. I think it would work better, like the TV show did with Rob, with uh, uh, Edward Woodward, uh, and keep it more small scale. This one's going to pl- take place in Italy and deal with the equalized Rob McCall battling the Italian mafia. So interesting subject matter. I'll I'll definitely be seeing in this uh, it's opening weekend. I, I'm definitely a fan of the Equal. Did you watch Equalize the TV show uh, back in the day? I don't think so. No, it's a good show. It's a good show. It was with an English actor named uh, uh, Edward, uh, Edward Woodward, and he was really good. Uh, sort of like a Michael Keane-ish type of uh, of an actor. Good show. And then, you know, another show that reminds me of The Equalizer, uh, Robert Morse did a show about 20 years ago on CBS called Hack. Played a cab driver that did a lot of things that The Equalizer did in that TV show. But it's a simple premise uh, of high interest, and when you get an actor like Denzel Washington, he just elevates the material to a very high level. Couple birthdays of interest this weekend: uh, Robert De Niro turned 80 years old this weekend. Uh, done eight, I think he's done uh, 127 movies, uh, eight more coming out uh, from Taxi Driver to Raging Bull to Goodfellas. Uh, meet the parents uh, I like him in the movie called The Intern with Anne Hathaway sort of downplaying his persona very likable, was terrific in The Joker he's made some bad ones also he's obviously uh, like every actor almost taking a paycheck for some but what a career uh, and also Godfather 2, excuse me for not mentioning that first, won an Oscar Best Supporting Actor, I think he was the only actor uh, to win an Oscar for his performance that was uh, in a foreign language subtitled on the screen. A great turn is Vito Corleone uh, in the way he started the family business back in the uh, day. So De Niro, hard to believe, 80 years old. Ken. And, and I believe he recently became a father again. He he, he will become, oh. I believe he, he will become a fabun is in the oven, as they say, Ken. Uh, De Niro's still going strong. Oh, okay, let me just preface <laughs> De Niro is still going very strong at the age of 80. Here's another big birthday, and they don't make movie stars like this anymore. Robert Redford this week turns 87 years old. 
I think he's done 83 movies. His last film was in 2020. Most likely, I would say he's probably retired, born in, born in 1936. What a what a career! What a movie star career! All the President's Men, The Sting. I can't see another actor playing Roy Hobbs in The Natural. That movie came out in 1984, directed by Barry Levison. That famous scene when he hits the home run and hits the light fixture, uh, reminiscent of uh, I guess the home run that Reggie Jackson hit in an all-star game in Detroit back in the day. I love The Natural. Um, he did a movie called Last Castle in 2001, which didn't do very well simply because it was released right after 9-11. It was about a military present, prison. James Gallifini played the bad guy. Very complex bad guy, by the way. Uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is probably the first movie I've ever seen in a movie theater in a re-release of Robert Redford. But uh, what, what an interesting person and a uh, classy guy. And a great career, 87 years old, Robert Redford. And I actually enjoyed that movie with Gandolfini. And, uh, you know, Redford wasn't Very young good. wasn't young when he made that movie because we can take, you know, 22 years off of his age. But he looked pretty good hauling those rocks, which I'm sure he weren't, weren't now, really you, rocks. But, I'll, yeah. tell you a quick, I'll tell you a quick footnote story about The Last Castle. When it was released after 2000, when it was released in 2001 after 9-11, there's a scene in the movie that symbolizes when you take over a military prison for the right reason, you hang the flag backwards, right? So they shot it that way, but they were skittish on doing that after 9-11 in feeling that the flag could be disrespected. So they went back in and CGI'd the, the flag upright in, the, in, those, in those scenes. I don't think it was necessary, but uh, I really do like that movie. And if you're a Robert Redford fan and you've never seen The Last Castle from 2001, I say put it on your radar uh, it's got to be streaming somewhere. Definitely well worth uh, seeing. No doubt about uh, that. Uh, some, let's bounce into this week in movie history, Ken. August 15th, 1939. And then I want you to reflect when I talk about this. The Wizard of Oz premieres at the Chinese Grumman Theater, the Grumman Chinese Theater in Hollywood. The entire cast including the director, Victor Fleming, Judy Garland, Ray Bolger, uh, Jackie Haley, uh, everybody is there for the red carpet premiere at the Grauman Chinese Theater back in 1939. What do you think it was like for audiences to discover The Wizard of Oz back in 1939? Culturally uh, speaking and, 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 and historically speaking. You know, it's one of those things. I often well wondered that about a lot of movies. And, you know, it had to be an amazing experience, especially, you got to remember, it was the first movie primarily shot in color. Um, right. It was purposely shot, started in black and white and ended in black and white, but Oz was all in color. That had to be breathtaking. Uh, the I can't imagine. There's a couple of things I would have loved to have been there in the movies. I would have been lo loved to be there the first time to hear Paul Robeson sing Old Man River and the first time to hear Ju Judy Garland sing Over the Rainbow. But I, I have to believe audiences came away from that finding it a wonderful movie. And it's, you know, it's hard to characterize it. Uh, yes, it's a musical, but I mean, is it geared towards children? Is it geared towards adults? Is it geared towards family? Is it, you know, it's too scary for a kid's movie? And it had to be an amazing experience. I, 
I would agree. You know, and it's what's interesting is Victor Fleming, as we stated many times in this program, not only directed Wizard of Oz, but directed Gone with the Wind, same year, 39, which that one won the Oscar for Best Picture. Uh, both films obviously standing the test of time. I think Wizard of Oz is a movie, as long as the human species is in existence, I think people generationally will always watch Wizard of Oz, which came out in 1939. Now, I'll tell you another story, which I, and I, I, we did a revival, the classic series, the Pocono Cinema. We started last Sunday, right? So we show Singing in the Rain from 1952. And we had, I think we had about 30 people uh, for a show and 25 people for the second, which is a solid number for the first for forte back into the classic series at the Pocono Cinema in East Strasburg. So when, when I address the audience, I, I sort of started to, to – I always think, what am I going to say? But what, I, what was on the top of my mind and I wanted to say is I said, let's give thought to what it would be like to be sitting – uh, in your house, getting ready to go to a movie theater to watch Singing in the Rain in 1952, entering the theater, which most likely, obviously, would be a single-screen movie theater, probably big, would probably have hundreds of seats because uh, movies in those decades attracted a lot of people, all single-screen theaters, and then to realize you're watching something highly entertaining, I mean, those dance numbers and Singing in the Rain and, and Make Them Laugh, there's a tremendous, tremendous, iconic numbers and I, I said to the audience uh, when, when when i was introducing it when they filmed that movie gene kelly was 40 and debbie reynolds was 20 which we know in in the age of woke in 2023 that would not fly right i mean it, it just there's no way that would fly but in those days most people just went to the movies to be entertained and celebrity uh was shielded meaning as a human being everybody has vices uh, I think the difference is you didn't know about, you didn't care about the vices of, of people uh, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Now people wear their vices on their sleeves. You got social media, you got TMZ. Everything you do, uh, every pimple on your skin is dissected. And I, I think that's really probably the biggest difference in a movie going is that the baggage is different, Ken. It's a very different animal. Absolutely. Although I think you know, I think I've seen seen a few Liam Neeson movies where the age difference might have been close to twenty years. Uh, and you know, Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly out of a decade oh, between them. Listen, yeah. still, we're, we're still we're still doing. Day, there you know, was a thirty year age difference. What we never what we never see very much is uh, the Cougar yeah. movie. You know, the old the older woman and the young younger guy. But yeah, you're you're right about that. Probably I I always have trouble with those ones where the age difference is very obvious even in my favorite uh white uh, holiday inn i said white christmas holiday inn you know the difference between uh bing crosby and yeah. the uh, marjorie reynolds is is a significant difference um and that's also one i i can't imagine what it was like the first time hearing that song that Irving irving berlin wanted to cut from the movie um, White Christmas and uh, you know being in the theater and seeing that I, it would be great to be a fly on the wall and be able to go back to uh, some of these things just the first time and see how am I going to react the first time I see this not knowing anything about it a ahead of time uh, I w would agree and I also pointed that out is that I'm assuming when most people walked into the theater to see uh, Wizard of Oz in 39 or Singing in the Rain in 52 uh, they really didn't know what they were going to say. They had no idea. There was not constant trailers and 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 and, and uh, 
all, all this other stuff. It just, uh, it, it was an element of surprise. And I think that would made the experience a lot more joyful. Some other stuff uh, in terms of this week in movie history, uh, Red Dawn was released August 1st, uh, 19, uh, I think it was 84, 1984, uh, Patrick Swayze, uh, C. Thomas Howell. What was interesting about that movie, it delved. It was directed and written by Milos. Uh, I, I forgot. I forget his name. But uh, Milos, I forget his last name. Uh, it delved heavily into a right wing political slant. Uh, I like that movie. Uh, thought it was very unique. High school students uh, being frontline in, an, in a uh, Russian invasion. Uh, on ho- on our homelands, creating World War Three uh, became a big hit that year, and it was the first movie, Red Dawn, that was released with a PG thirteen uh, rating. PG thirteen rating uh, that was caused by Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, causing an uproar with some of the violent content in those movies. So they created PG thirteen, and Red Dawn was actually the first film released PG thirteen. Now, twenty years ago, two thousand three. In August, Freddy vs. Jason was released. Uh, I thought for what this movie was, it was pretty entertaining. I thought they did a really good job uh, merging to two horror icons. Robert England was awesome. Again, is Freddy Krueger. Very funny, actually, some of his line delivery. But if you're going to take Jason and Freddy and put them in a movie, I think they did a pretty good job of this. It made some money. They never took the concept uh, into sequels or had other uh, horror icons merge into one film. And I think it's actually a good idea uh, to, to actually explore one other one, uh, and then we'll start to get into our main topic, which will be our top ten favorite uh, movies deals with, dealing with machines or artificial intelligence. Thirty-seven years ago, this week, David Cronenberg's *The Fly* was released, starring Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. I remember going to see this for the first time in a theater, being completely enveloped, totally involved, hundred percent blown away by one the concept. The performance, the feel of it, uh, a masterpiece in my opinion. David Cronenberg, who also directed Dead Ringers, he directed The Dead Zone. He's made great movies. The Fly may be his greatest. 37 years ago this week, The Fly was released. Probably the best performance in the career of Jeff Goldblum, and that's saying a lot. Uh, Bittersweet, sad, romantic, scary, horrific. What a terrific film, Uh, The Fly. 37 years ago today in theaters. Boy, when I say that, Ken, when I say does time fly, I mean, to think that movies that feel like yesterday came out 20, 30, 40 years ago uh, is almost hard to wrap your brain around. It, it is, and you know, you mentioned Red Dawn. That's another one where, and I've read this recently, somebody commenting about it, you know, Patrick Swayze uh, was a 32-year-old high school student in that yeah, one. he was. Uh, and, and he went to, must have gone to this, <laughs> He went to the same high school, I think, as Stockard Channing in uh, in Greece. But uh, yeah, it's uh, something you know, I was, and I was thinking, well, okay, he was the older older guy in the group. Yeah, you know? well, maybe he got left back a few times. Yeah, right yeah, and of course we'll never forget that battle cry of Wolverine and all, and all that. But uh, I, I mean, that movie almost forty years ago, and I remember the first time I watched it. Yeah, uh, and I, I I still say when I reflect on a lot of this stuff. Yeah in the 80s and I remember sitting going into movie houses to watch these these movies it's just I think people just went into a theater for a different reason than they do now I don't think they were pulled into the theater by massive marketing campaigns they were sort of like they opened the newspaper and they saw a print ad 
or they heard an advertisement on the radio and they said, ah, that sounds like a pretty good concept. Let me wander into a theater and watch this movie. And again, it mostly enveloped and played out without preconceived notion of watching half the movie in cut uh, scenes on, on YouTube. And the experience was very different at that point in the 80s when Red Dog come out. There was a lot of do du- probably duplexes, some probably uh, maybe some three screen theaters, but they didn't have the multiplexes yet. And uh, movie theaters got big crowds, especially Friday and Saturday. Uh, I, I don't care what movie showed. You had a really sizable audience show up for the open, opening weekend of almost uh, everything. But uh, good memories to say the but least. Back, now, back then, we, yeah, back then uh, people still went to movies as a okay. Well, every Saturday or Sunday we're going to go to a movie. People still mm-hmm. went to movies for dates. Yes. People still went on dates, mm-hmm. uh, and it was, you know it was a different it was a different world. And uh, yeah, you didn't. Uh, I most so, of the time when so I. What you, so, so what you're saying now in 2023, it's not Tinder in a movie? I don't think so, to tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, if, any, and if anything, it's, oh, come on over and watch Netflix, and we know what that yeah. means. But, um, yes, I, and I It's still, it's one big change where I think now people go to the movies to see a specific movie, and we're losing those people, which were the bread and butter of the Pocono cinema, those people who'd show up every Tuesday or Wednesday, look at the board, see what was playing, and decide when they were at the box office what they were going to go see that you know that that's the way it that's the way it used to be it was like I am going to go to a movie on Saturday and then I will decide what it is I'm going to go see yeah I agree uh it's a it's a very different uh very different world I'm not saying it so I don't want to sound like a naysayer and say it's all downhill but it's just it's just a very different world Uh, a couple points that I miss I just want to bring up uh Variety released a uh a, a small article that stated that Margaret Robbie, because because her production company actually produced Bobby, she stands to make over fifty million dollars plus. Uh, star of the film, producer of the movie, uh, production company produced it. Hey, good for her. Having said that, I think one of the issues with the industry is again the top talent, uh, and then again there's your top talent for a reason. Uh, I'm not trying to discount that, but if she makes fifty million dollars and you got these other starving actors and writers on a picket line holding up a sign hoping their house doesn't get foreclosed on. Uh, I think they need to bridge the the sharing of wealth, maybe just a tweak better uh, so you could eradicate some of these problems. You have thoughts on that or am, or am I overstepping my boundaries here? Oh, you, you are probably understating it because I believe scale right now is around $5,600. That's yeah. the minimum you have to get if you appear in a movie and I believe you also have to have a speaking line to turn that and a lot of actors and actresses out there that you see uh, aren't getting much more than scale you might have 10 or 12 actors in a movie who are really being paid but most most of them are just background material and it's right. it you know even if they are being paid you know if they get a $50,000 paycheck for doing a movie they're thrilled and it's uh, it is a great difference between the highly paid and lower paid and it's the same with the writers uh, a head writer is going to make a lot more money than the guy who's schlepping in the back room rewriting scripts right i mean here's a case where hey yes it does it does pay to be the most talented person in the room and the biggest star uh in the project which is margaret robbie uh and not that she shouldn't make the big money but this just got to be 
it just definitely got to be a frustration among a lot of working actors that this continues to be uh, the, uh, the the case. And one other point about box office this year, uh, I think movies at this after this weekend uh, this stand to do uh, about four billion dollars in business, which is very good. As I stated last week's program, July was the second biggest July in terms of uh, dollar amount ever taken in at the box office. I gotta be honest, surprising and impressive. And the three biggest hits of the year, which is Super Mario Brothers, Bobby Oppenheimer, all movies produced for under $150 million. The movies that cost almost 300, which would be Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, and Indiana Jones and the Dollar Destiny, uh, and The Flash uh, article stated that uh, Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible probably initially will lose about $100 million. I don't know how they got that math because I, I think Mission Impossible will be clo- most closer to a break-even and eventually get in, in, in its, in its uh, afterlife, after theatrics. It's going to go into profit. Dollar Destiny feels like a movie that's going to lose at least $200 million because $300 million budget, not even $400 million worldwide. Uh that's a problem uh having said that shouldn't you shouldn't that should not be a judgment on the enjoyment or quality of any movie i know we do it uh to a point but you know the hammerization of box office gross versus quality of movie they have no significance they don't mean anything uh but this is definitely a very interesting summer the way this has played out so if there is a message to studios, it would be try to produce your bigger movies for 150 million or less. Uh, try to make movies that uh, are geared to interest that people want to see. Meaning, women want to see movies about women, and so do men. Uh, I do too. So, uh, be diverse. Stop with the bombardment of male action-oriented uh, product. Superhero. Here's my. I want to talk about this real quick before we go on our main topic. Where do we stand with the superhero movie? They're not going to go, first of all, superhero movies are not going to go away. People know the reason James Bond has survived so long since the early 60s is because they don't make one every year. So they whet the appetite uh, every three to five years, and it always creates an excitement of the next James Bond movie. So they know that people are always going to have an interest in Batman and Iron Man and Superman and, and Captain America, so on and so forth. But you can't hit us over the head with non-stop action movie, uh, superhero movies. You have to space them out. Uh, and I know that Marvel is in some sort of pre-production uh, in the game planning stage of a property, uh, Avengers Secret Wars. And, and this storyline, Ken, brings back everybody, even the characters that died, meaning Robert Downey Jr., if they write a big enough paycheck, has a, I think has a good chance to come back as Iron Man. And if you can get Iron Man back and Captain America and every superhero at Marvel in one movie again, especially Robert Downey Jr., you're going to create a massive interest and, and the studio at Marvel is going to go, hmm, we can make $2 billion on this movie. So they're not going to give up on superhero movies are, are going to be here. They're not going anywhere because it's just too much of a seed investment 10 years, 20 years out. But you got to get back to where you're doing, like I just uh, went in the beginning of the program, to Cisco Libra, 76, Network, Rocky, King Kong. Uh, those movies all did extremely well. Just be more diverse and, and give other people, diverse audiences, minorities, women, whatever, give them 
more product of what they want to see besides just one thing, which they've put uh, all the eggs in one basket, literally, in the last three years. And I, I think uh, the, 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 the chicken has come home to roost. Uh, it's imploding upon itself. And uh, will it autocorrect? Of course it will. Uh, but, it, but again, it will take uh, some time. Any, any thoughts on that diatribe there, Ken? Uh, my only thought is that there is a common uh, link between Mario Brothers, uh, the Barbie movie, and Oppenheimer, and that is all of them are, to some extent, believe it or not, character-driven. Yes. And so maybe that's the other thing, but you know, we, we need to save that for another show and go into it in a lot of detail. But here's the, here's the thing, uh, real quick, I just want to point out. I know a lot of college students because I employ them and I, and, I, and I have a lot of them as customers that I speak to. And a lot of them will binge stream shows, even the older ones. Like I've had college students at ESU will, will start a conversation on what are you watching in film and television. And they'll say, you know, I just binge watched uh, every episode over the last six months of Grey's Anatomy. Right. So Grey's Anatomy is now and it's 19, 19 years Grey's Anatomy has gone on. 19 years. Right. So. They have the. They clearly have the attention span to watch a character-driven television show, nineteen seasons of it. So why do studios think that young people don't have an attention span to watch character-driven movies? They do. Well, I, I can tell you the answer. I, oh, I can give you the answer. That oh, we're going to, you know, d- completely destroy our top ten here. But uh, the answer is because if I'm binge watching, uh, yeah. Grey's Anatomy, I'm stopping it to go to the refrigerator, I'm stopping it to go to the bathroom, I'm stopping, I'm, I'm probably on my phone while I'm watching it. I'm not sitting there watching it. When I'm binge watching uh, on television, I'm really not paying 100% attention. Mm. Uh, fair argument. Having said that, uh, they still getting th- they still get through it. I mean, listen, but again, you're talking about uh, you're talking about n- 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 19 years, 30 episodes a year, 24 to 30 episodes a year. That is uh, many days in one's life. Yes. Uh, a movie's just requiring a person to sit there in a movie theater between 90 minutes and say two and a half hours. It's not not a lot to ask for. Once you get sucked into a character. I think all bets are off, and, and, it's, and it's pretty much smooth sailing. You just got to have the confidence uh, that your movie will hook the audience, and you don't need to blow up something every three minutes uh, to, to get people's Absolutely. attention. Absolutely. I don't think Absolutely. So. All right. You yeah. want my number 10 movie? Yeah, so we're going to do our top 10 movies that deal with machines, AI, artificial intelligence, uh, whatever you want. Your your, your 10 through 6, Ken. My 10 through 6. My number 10, uh, it's an unusual one because it's a love story. And, uh, I mean, a movie that has Amy Adams and you don't get to see her, but that's okay. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix was absolutely fantastic in this. It is the movie Her, where somebody falls in love with his AI voice. And we're seeing, we're actually seeing advertising, I see on Facebook, for chatbots who can be your romantic partner. And you know we're going to merge that with um, virtual reality soon, and uh, it's going to be more than just uh, talking to them. My number nine, you know, if you go, if you're in Boulder, Colorado, and you happen to go to the Boulder Community Hospital, you may run into the star of this show. Uh, Tiffany Brissett. Tiffany Brissett was the star of the television series Small Wonder. 
uh, she was a robot. And Edie McClurg was always trying to figure out what what it was with her. But uh, Tiffany uh, retired from uh, acting and became a nurse and has been uh, in uh, this hospital in Boulder for a long time. Just looked it up on LinkedIn while uh, we were doing the show. But uh, Small Wonder, great uh, television show about, well, okay, a good television show about a uh, robot, a young girl, and uh, uh, memorable. Uh, I asked. I was asking people for advice on what to use in my top ten, and um, my daughter's boyfriend came up with Small Wonder and said, "Yeah, I like that one." Number eight is the Uncle Simon episode of Twilight Zone that gave us that long-lasting memory. Barbara, I want a cup of hot chocolate. <laughs> the young, the young Barbara was the niece of Simon. Simon was an old crotchety nasty guy uh, and Barbara killed Simon and uh, as part of his will he left his entire estate to her but she had to live in the estate with this robot he had created which had AI and slowly took on his persona and she had to submit to its every whim which included Barbara I want a cup of hot chocolate so nothing changed for her number seven the, the movie version the TV version, any version of Westworld. We've talked about it many times. Uh, virtual reality and machines and AI all at the same time. Uh, you know, pretty pretty interesting there. And my number six, it does involve extraterrestrials, but it also involves a lot of AI, and it is uh, Minority Report. That great tell that great movie about the precogs and about stopping crime before it happens and prosecuting people for thinking about committing a crime. So that was my number 10 through six. Uh, good list, Ken. Here's my 10 through six. Real quick, my number 10. Uh, I, I did some sh- some schlock on this list because I enjoy this stuff. Uh, it's a movie called Ch- Chopping Mall, which is a B-horror movie uh, from 1986. Actually, it's a stream movie from 1986 on my list. Kelly Maroney uh, is a star. She was uh, Captain Mary Stewart's sister in Night of the Comets, two years removed. It's about uh, teen workers in a, in, a, in, a sh- in a shopping mall that get trapped overnight. There's an electrical storm, and it turns the security robots into killing machines uh it's nothing but schlock but it's fun schlock i always liked her i think she's pretty appealing to lead a b movie so my number 10 is shopping mall my number eight another b horror film uh west craven's deadly friend uh very interesting film doesn't all work but i've always been a fan from 1986 about uh, a, a young kid uh matthew uh, Lavinor, who is on Little House in the Prairie, super likable in this movie. First 30 minutes feels like E.T. He has a robot named B.B. Uh, and it's a very enjoyable, almost feels like a family movie. First 30 minutes. Girl next door who he's infatuated. Father kills her. He takes the brain chip from the robot, puts it in the girl, and then the movie turns into just a plain slasher film for the next hour. But good cast, interesting concept in this movie. And to me, that's an entertaining watch. So Deadly Trip friend my number nine number eight how about maximum overdrive from 1986 the only film that stephen king actually not only wrote but he directed this one is it a perfect movie no is it a good movie maybe not but the concept's really interesting about machines that come to 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 life after some sort of uh, radioactive storm 
ACDC did the score. Emilio Vestavez is a star, has a lot of good visuals, some good action, some interesting thought-provoking stuff, has some bad stuff too, but I still like it. It's my number eight. Number seven, Stanley Kubik's 2001 A Space Odyssey. How a computer, his, his interaction with the astronauts, to me, fascinating, thought-provoking, way ahead of its time, groundbreaking in its objective 2001 a space odyssey my number seven and my number six is westworld 73 i remember going to a theater in the 70s watching this movie must have went back about five times as a little boy Hugh brenner is a gunslinger this deals with machines and artificial intelligence and the dangers of being too uh open to it uh the last half hour of westworld the movie 73 is awesome richard benjamin probably an actor they wouldn't cast in the lead of a movie like this but he's so good james brolin supporting really good you brenner against james uh, against richard brenner in the last 30 minutes is awesome uh directed also not only written but directed by michael Crichton uh a decade before uh or two decades before his jurassic park so that's my 10 through 6 ken Great, great list, and uh, I actually saw a couple of those movies. My number five, uh, well, one of the main stars of this movie is a machine. He replaced somebody who probably was more machine-like uh, than a machine, uh, you know, half Vulcan, half uh, human. But uh, it's Star Trek The Next Generation, whether it's the movie or the TV show, because, of course, Data is a machine. And Data has artificial intelligence. Data has feelings, even. And... Uh, we could also use, uh, you know, the counterpart from uh, some of the uh, spoofs that have come after it. But uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, uh, especially with Data as your uh, probably second major character, third major character on that show. So that is my number five. Good pick. My number five. I went with uh, Blue Thunder from uh, 1983, directed by John Bannum, starring the great late great Roy Scheider about a uh, military uh, high-tech helicopter that can, can control s- security in a local neighborhood. Uh, Malcolm McDowell is a great villain. I loved, and I mean I love Roy Scheider. I think this is an awesome fit for his talent. Uh, the helicopter was the star of the show. The effects were fantastic for a movie in 1983. Totally involving one of my favorite films of that decade. So Blue Thunder is my number five. My number four television series, Netflix series, I think, or maybe maybe it's a, uh, I think it might be an Amazon series, um, combines artificial intelligence, computers, virtual reality, virtual existence. It's the show Upload where... You can pay to have your humanity uploaded to the, this computer network, and you basically live the rest of eternity in a hologram. But you eat, drink, feel. Well, if you have enough money to pay for that, you can. If you're poor, you have limited data, so you may end up going into uh, just a, a suspended uh, life for 30 out of the 31 days. But, you know, these, a lot of these movies you see and will come someday, you know, are the people that are trying to find a way to take human existence, human, our, our, our soul, if you will, and be able to upload it into a machine to achieve uh, immortality, or at least until you don't pay your bill and they uh, delete you, or until, uh, you know, there's a power failure. So that's my number four. Good pick. Uh, really good pick. My number four is The Matrix from 99. There's been four Matrix films. This is really 
the one uh, to see. Highly thought-provoking. And I tell you, Ken, there's, uh, I read articles on this. There are actually are millions and millions of people in the world who actually believe. And when I started to read about what they believe, I found it very intriguing that our life is not really real, that we're really part of a computer simulation, and that everything we do in our life, our consciousness, our actions are all predetermined by a computer program. Now, it sounds for a fascinating concept for a movie, and it is, and The Matrix was a fascinating film uh, from 93, but I would say this, uh, it is really something to think about, not that I believe it, but there are things that happen where I actually say, you know what, is this really real? Uh, or am I in some sort of a, a matrix? Uh, action scenes all over this movie, fantastic. So my number four is The Matrix. Very, very thought-provoking stuff. Yeah, and I, I do think, I mean, we only have a limited concept of what reality is. And, you know, there may be, there you may can't be something. Discount it, you cannot discount that possibility 100%. You couldn't. Nope, not at all. And yeah. it would explain a lot of things, like the Mets winning the World Series in 1969, <laughs> computer glitch. I, I, I just realized I'm going to do two Ali, Sheely, Ali Sheedy's in a row. I'm a big oh. Ali Sheedy fan. Hey, uh, but the first one is going to be uh, well, more Matthew Broderick, but War Games. That's my number three. Oh, that's my number three. I was. You know, um, uh, well, why don't you tell us about War Games then? Well, listen. Uh, I remember going to a theater to see War Games in '83. A lot of packed houses. It was a big hit. Uh, Matthew Broderick, to me, you know, he said in a recent interview that there's going to be two words that define his career, whether he likes it or not, and that's Ferris Bueller. But I actually love Matthew Broderick the best in War Games. I think his his persona fit fit perfectly about a kid who is sort of a little bit of a know-it-all and a lazy high school student that has some high intellect, has his home computer, goes on it. Uh, looking to change his grades, taps into a government computer, which may or may not control uh, the simulation or reality of creating War Three. Ali Sheedy plays his girlfriend. She's super, super appealing in this movie. High stakes. I remember sitting on pins and needles in the last act of this movie. It's very well done. And this also is directed by John Bannum, who did Blue Thunder. Uh, I love War Games. I mean, I love that movie. One of my favorite movies of the 1980s. Great pick. Uh, great minds think alike, Ken. So yeah, War I, Games is both on number three. Yeah, uh, do you want to play a game? But, you know, and here we're talking about computers that had the C prompt <laughs> at the, yeah. uh, when you turn them on. I mean, it's uh, number two starred Fisher Stevens and Ali Sheedy. Okay. And Johnny Five. And, of course, it was Short Circuit, a, a great movie about a computer who was searching for humanity, a semi-comedy, and uh, it, not much better than its sequel, but Short Circuit is my second favorite movie about a machine. It's a good pick. Uh, and, and the one I remember about that movie, uh, besides being entertaining, uh, is that Fisher Stevens wound up uh, having a good career, uh, I think he directed some some stuff, but he also dated Michelle Pfeiffer. So, uh, pretty 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 interesting footnote, and good for him. My number two, I went with Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop, uh, a groundbreaking movie of entertainment, violence, uh, societal uh, study, uh, 
Peter Peter Weller was awesome as Murphy. Nancy Allen co-starred in this movie. Really good movie about a uh, a, a cop who gets uh, gunned down. Uh, actually, one of the most violent scenes in the history of genre filmmaking. His his limbs are blown off, and they recreate him as a robot. Uh, with his human in- intellect still uh, attached to some extent, uh, artificial intelligence basically is commanding his body uh, as a machine. Very thought-provoking, entertaining. Paul Verhoeven also did Total Recall, a very, very uh, good, uh, groundbreaking director in many different ways. So my number two uh, would be RoboCop. And definitely was on my final 15 when I cut down to, to 10. My number one uh, was... I think every man's fantasy, and that is uh, the Stepford Wives, where, of course, oh, cool. people move to the town of Stepford, and, and the original Stepford Wives, the original not, one, not the yeah. remake. Uh, well, the remake, they went for some comedy, which I think was a massive mistake. Right, but, you know, yeah, since, since we can't teach women to be obedient, we simply replace them with machines. And, you know, they never gain weight, they never talk back. They're never late. It's just absolutely perfect. No, folks, I'm being sarcastic here. That's not, that's not actually how Chuck or I, I was think of cut women. You off in a second, but yes, I let right. you go. So, so step for wives is my number one because it's about machines, but it's a really, uh, it's a really uh, dark movie. I I would agree with that uh, totally. My number one, well, it's an easy pick for me. I went with Terminator, the original, but also obviously two, and I like three also. James Cameron's Terminator in 1984 was groundbreaking in many ways, but the reason the movie holds up so well and is so interesting is that everything he stated or laid out in that film is happening now where the dangers of artificial intelligence and computer programming defining our life and the danger of, of machines gaining too much uh, intellect and uh, intertwining and over, uh, eventually superseding uh, our everyday life. Um, could it happen? I think it is happening as we, 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 we speak and it appears like those films, we're going to let it happen. And I think that's the, the testament and the danger of artificial intelligence as a whole. But Terminator works on multiple levels, also works beautifully as a time travel story, which is always a fascinating subject in, in film. From Schwarzenegger becoming a star as a Terminator to Michael Bean and, and, and Linda Hamilton. Uh, really good chemistry, but great direction by James Cameron, who had a vision. Uh, he upped the vision in, in part two. And as I stated last week, because we did briefly mention Terminator 3, Jonathan Maskell's movie, I thought it's a good end to uh, an original trilogy. So Terminator is my number one, Ken. And I think we talked last week about AI doing the news, AI yeah, writing, writing uh, scripts. Well, this week, my daughter sent me an agreement to look, look over to modify as a, as a lawyer. And this agreement she had created through one of these AI chatbots. Wow. And it's like, okay, yeah. you don't need me anymore. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'll tell you another thing. I, I, we bought a new car, me and my wife, right? And so in the car, she says Sirius Satellite Radio. So when I put on the sports uh, stations like ESPN, uh, oh, there's a ton of them, right? And you could tell when they introduce upcoming program, it's all a voice of artificial intelligence. Yep. Just reading, just reading the upcoming events of the day, which I find unbelievably insulting and annoying. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was a lot of fun, Ken, uh, to our audience at WoWA. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts.
podcast by Federated Media.